Welcome to The Green Rush, a podcast about the intersection of cannabis, the capital markets, and culture. On a weekly basis, hosts Anne Donahoe and Nick Opich of KCSA Strategic Communications speak with the business leaders, financial experts, cultural icons, legislators, and generally interesting people moving the cannabis and psychedelics industries forward. This week, Anne and Nick are back for a new episode with special guest Deborah Mash, Ph.D., CEO and president of DemarX Inc., a special stage drug development company. Dr. Mash joins us this week to discuss how Ibogaine works in the brain and body, the drug's therapeutic potential to treat addiction, the various aha moments she's experienced in her career, and how that led her to focus on psychedelic medicines, and what's next for the company and medicinal psychedelics. If you're interested in learning more about Demerx Inc. and Ibogaine, visit the links in our show notes. Also, be sure to follow Dr. Mash and Demerx Inc. on LinkedIn. So, sit back and enjoy our conversation with Dr. Mash of Demerx Inc. Dr. Deborah Mash, we are so honored to have you on the podcast. We've been following your work um, for years. Uh, you are the, the foremost expert on ibogaine, which is one of the more promising yet kind of lesser known psychedelic substances in the, in the broader culture. Can you give us, before we dive into everything, an overview of, of what it is and how it works on the brain and the body? Ibogaine is an indole alkaloid originally isolated from the roots of an African shrub called Tabernanti iboga, which grows in the region of Gabon and Cameroon. It has a very long history of ethnopharmacology and ethnobotany, and it is used in a particular dose range for inducing a religious experience by practitioners of the Bwiti religion in the region. So this is a, an active sacrament, if you will, in Africa right now, today, with, with many people who follow this tradition. It's a sacred plant. And it makes its way into the United States. It was used in the 60s when psychedelic therapy was really just beginning to make its way into you know, kind of a gray zone of, of practitioner use, but there actually, there were many people, I, I'm amazed myself as I go back now in time and talk to people, talk to psychiatrists and therapists and psychologists who were actually working with these substances. Of course, MDMA was being used, but the Ibogaine is unique of all the psychedelics and the late Sasha Shulga explained it to me this way. He said, if you put psychedelics in boxes. There are four boxes. One box is LSD and psilocybin. Another box is the tryptamines. The other box is hallucinogenic amphetamines. And Ibogaine sits in a box by itself. The pharmacology of Ibogaine is somewhat related to ketamine, but it's way more complicated than that because it has an active metabolite called noribogaine, 
which also hits a distinct number of targets. The simplest way to explain the brain effect is that it's acting not on a single neurotransmitter system. It's acting on a cluster or a circuit where dopamine, which is an important neurotransmitter for addiction, you know, all abused substances elevate the neurotransmitter dopamine. When you feel good about you getting up in the morning, you've got a good, you know, dopamine buzz on board. So we think that for some people, the risk for becoming addicted to a drug is that some people may be self-medicating low dopamine or a lack of ability to derive pleasure from the environment. And that gives you a vulnerability. Ibogaine resets this loop. And I must say, as a, as a neuroscientist sitting here today, we don't know all the parts of this puzzle, but definitely the, the targets that haven't been identified are very suggestive that Mother Nature has given us a potentially uh, what I call an antidote to addicting things from nature like opium, nicotine, cocaine, and you know the, you know the list. What's even more interesting, though, is this idea that Ibogaine and Noribogaine both turn on neuroplasticity windows. And this is true for the other psychedelics as well. But there are two uh, pieces of uh, seminal works that are coming out of Stanford with Dr. Nolan Williams and his studies of the veterans who have gone offshore as well as work from the Hopkins investigators looking now more at animal models, that Ibogaine is kind of the, the big reset in the brain because ketamine is, opens a short window of neuroplasticity, MDMA psilocybin a little bit longer, maybe on the order of several weeks, and Ibogaine looks like it's really having fundamental changes out to one month. And we don't even know how much longer than that. The veterans who have been working with Ibogaine, so these are, again, are, are seminal data, which are, um, to my knowledge, under still under review, peer review for the publication, demonstrate really profound recovery of function after an Ibogaine dose. As I sit here today, Many years ago, I had this conversation with my colleagues at the National Institute on Drug Abuse, the NIH division that funds research for addiction and the development of small molecules and advancing the neurobiology of addiction. And I said, in our work with patients who were seeking Ibogaine, and we were running the Ibogaine clinic offshore at the time in St. Kitts, that this drug... You know, we didn't use the word transformative, which is now what we use with psychedelic medicine. But I said, this is engaging the frontal lobes. These people, this is snapping people out of their addiction. And the late Howard Lutzoff said, it's an addiction interrupter. Hmm. Dr. Mash, let's take a, a step back. Um, and I'd really love to um, hear more about because you've been working with Ibogaine since since the 90s, which is which is a, a long time in this in this world um, to be doing that. Can you first can you talk to us about what it was first like to get interested in Ibogaine? Like what what attracted you to that versus, you know, some of the more traditional psychedelics like LSD, psilocybin and MDMA that we see grabbing uh, the headlines nowadays? 
there was a series of what we call synchronicity events, synchronous events that led me to Ibogaine. One of the big ones was the fact that I had set up my laboratory working with medical examiners and other people around uh, death and dying to be able to accession brains donated for medical research. And I'm, in fact, the founder and former director of the University of Miami Brain Endowment Bank, one of the largest biorepositories of postmortem human tissues donated for research. And I'm very proud of that. We've actually helped many academic and industry investigators over many decades. But here I am, I'm working in my own laboratory and I'm working with medical examiners and Miami-Dade gets hit hard with the cocaine epidemic. So as you can recall, the Miami Vice days uh, where (laughs) we we had so much um, cocaine because we were a, a transshipment point of entry into the United States. You know, cocaine was coming in from through the Bahamian corridor into South Florida. It was hitting the streets. And, and when we get crack cocaine use, medical examiners, there were all these young people dying with what we thought were recreational levels of cocaine in their blood. I submit a grant to the NIH and IDA. We get funded on a first submission, which is very unusual. Now we get the money and I bring the team together. And it's okay, we've got this money from the NIH. What is, what are, how are we going to, you know, utilize these important funds to really make a difference? And not only in our community, but also to inform cocaine addiction. How, what are we going to do? And that leads me to the discovery of coca ethylene, the ethyl homolog when you drink and use cocaine in combination. And why do I bring this up? Because we make we get national recognition for this right in the first year of our grant. And to make it even more interesting, we they the science mag- magazine names us the Miami Vice metabolite. I'm traveling around, I'm giving lectures. We we are in the news. We are in the news. And what happens next is in the in the process of me touring around, lecturing about our discovery of this Miami Vice metabolite, I start hearing about this drug from Africa that can break the cycle of addiction. And I remember vividly, I was in the, at a conference, the president of the University of Miami asked me to join him to present to the Coalition for a Drug-Free America. And I'm sure some of the listeners will recall what that is, but that was the old just say no days, right? Mm-hmm. Just yeah. I, I was giving the lecture about our work and a black gentleman came up to the podium afterwards to ask me a question. And I was surrounded by many people. There were a lot of people all wanting to talk to me about the work that we were doing. And this gentleman says to me, have you heard about this drug from Africa? And he's very animated, totally animated, trying to get me to pay attention. And I'm looking at him like, no, I've never heard of this. I I really don't know what you're talking about. And I'm sorry, sir, but do you see all these people around me that are trying to ask me questions? I, I apologize, but I don't know what you're talking about. And I've never heard of it. So anyway, but thank you. And I kind of pushed him away. That was the first time I heard about Ibogaine. 
The second time I heard about Ibogaine, I was at the College of the Problems of Drug Dependence, College on the Problems of Drug Dependence. The second time I heard about it, I was attending and presenting at the College on the Problems of Drug Dependence. And I was getting bored with my own research, actually. And so I said, I'm just going to sit in this other room. And it was a it was a cocaine session. And I'm going to sit in the back of the room and whatever that was going on in that, I'll learn something. Okay. I'm, you know, got my program on my lap and I'm reading the program. And this, this professor from Albany by the name of Stanley Glick gets up there and he's giving this drug from Africa to rats who are self-administering cocaine and heroin and they stop taking it. And I go, wait a minute. That's that same thing. That's that same drug that that gentleman was trying to get me to pay attention to. Now I've heard it twice. When I come back from that meeting and I go to my office, there was a message on my answering service from Howard Lutzoff, who made the seminal discovery and was running an underground railroad of addicts helping addicts. It was the International Coalition of Addict Self-Help and the Dutch Addict Self-Help Movement in Amsterdam. And he calls me up because he wants to use our work on cocaethylene to support a polydrug dependency patent, which has long expired, to get that patent issued. And at the time, he had four patents already with Ibogaine, one for opiate, one for nicotine, one for psychostimulants, and the other with alcohol. And now he was going for polydrug. I asked him, I said, you're the man behind Ibogaine. What is the drug? How does it work? What's the mechanism of action? And he said, all right. He said, I'll come down to Miami. And I, I said, well, bring your data. Come on down. We're, we're all ears. I want to hear about this. Now, now, now my, my interest is piqued. And Howard and Norma Lutzoff flew into Miami, met with me, my colleagues, my ex-husband, a few other people. We all went out to dinner. And he brings with him his data, which at the time was a box of kind of junky papers and newspaper clippings. He had no data, but he had something extremely important. He had worked very, very hard to get Ibogaine, sources of Ibogaine, manufactured in a way that the FDA would allow to be administered to humans. He invites me to Amsterdam. I get on a plane, I fly to Amsterdam, and I see three men administered Ibogaine. Two were opioid users and one was freebasing cocaine. And I mean a lot of it. I couldn't do any research there, but I stayed up all night. And I, I sat from room to room. I went from room to room and I, you know, sat at the bed watching these people who had taken the drug. And they and these were these were these were men who really struggled with addiction, understand me. And mm. A one young man was a, a musician, really talented young musician, and he had been, you know, injecting lots of heroin for for a long time. The other man, um, a very gentle, loving soul, a beautiful man. I'll always remember him. I'll always remember him too. And he had been on methadone for a very long time, struggled with addiction for a very long time, 
And I watched him transform. I watched him come in very sick, dope sick, and then take a single dose of Ibogaine. And the next day, get out of bed, shower, shave, clean up, and sit at breakfast across the table from me and look like a new person. I mean, I'm sitting there and I'm looking at this and I'm seeing it with my own eyes. I'm seeing it with my own eyes. And the the aha moment, you know, we talk about pre-contemplative, contemplative, ready for change. Each of these young men were, were ready to, you know, forge a new path. Mm-hmm. They wanted, to, they got back their self-control. They got back their belief that they could, they could change it. You know, they could change their behavior, that they had this amazing insight into why they were abusing drugs. They weren't dope sick. It completely blocked the signs and symptoms of withdrawal and the cravings. These men did not run out of there and go out and score dope. I mean, they were in Amsterdam. They could have. Right. But they didn't. And so I was like, my God, what is this? And I came back to the United States and I did what I think a good scientist would do, which was to report what I saw. And I went to the University of Miami. I went to my dean of research and I told him what I saw. And my, I said, we have to, we have to study this. And when I told my dean of research, I said, you know, we're, we in the academic community, given the magnitude of the drug problem in our society, we need to study this drug. We cannot leave this stone unturned. I was invited to go up to the National Institute on Drug Abuse to give another talk about cocaethylene. By now, I'm really sick of cocaethylene, by the way. And I was like, that was dumb. <laughs> I was like, yeah, that's old news, you know. I wanted to get into patients. I wanted to test this drug because maybe it was a solution for our societal problem. Maybe it was another tool in the toolbox. And at the time, we had nothing. What did we have? We had methadone. That's it. Methadone. Nothing else. Am and this is, the nine, this is the early 90s? No. 92, 93. Oxone wasn't there. You know, Shantex wasn't there for nicotine addiction. And there was nothing for cocaine or psychostimulant addiction. Guess what? As I sit here today, there still isn't anything for that. So here we are. Fast forward, um, I present to NIDA. I talk to my colleagues at NIDA because you got to fund this research, right? You need funding to do clinical research and you need a whole bunch of dollars to do clinical research. And my laboratory was funded, but not for Ibogaine. So I had to seek funding. And Howard Lutzoff, unfortunately, although he had the drug supply, he did not have the funding either. I went to NIDA. I spoke to my colleagues, I told them what I saw, and I told them that University of Miami was going to submit what is called an academic investigator-initiated protocol to the FDA. And that's what we did. We did. We And I'd never done that before. I honestly did not know, even know how to do it. But I, I'm, a, I'm a fast learner. So we worked very, very hard. I, I was able to recruit a stellar team of of academic investigators, not only at the University of Miami, but also at University of California, San Francisco. This was the premier um, 
pharmacokinetic group. I mean, these were pharmacokinetic modelers. Ibogaine is a complex drug. Its, its metabolism is really a complicated puzzle in and of itself. And I had collaborations with uh, University of Toronto and Rachel Tyndale, who was the reigning expert of looking at cytochromes. These are the liver enzymes that metabolize ibogaine. And so she put her, you know, kind of a portfolio of lab skills and talents behind us. We we just had so many good people. We had people from um, the United States Public Health Service. And by the way, the FDA was extremely collaborative and helpful. Hmm. That division, the division that, that evaluates drugs for the treatment of addiction, anesthesia, pain meds, at the FDA were extremely collaborative and helpful to us. I mean, they kind of were expecting an Ibogaine IND to be submitted. And when ours came in, they were extremely helpful. So we were able to actually get FDA approval first in 1993. And then with the modified protocol in 1995, they gave us the green light. They green lighted us all the way. Again, we worked very close. They were, they uh, treated us, um, no different than, you know, other other people who would be submitting protocols. I mean, we had to, you know, check the box, as we like to say, with an FDA submission. However, they recognized the importance of the problem and they they were welcomed us to the table to begin this work. On And then there was Ibogaine. There were only three of us that were had, you know, approved protocols to work with psychedelic medicines. And, you know, Ibogaine was schedule one. So we were early, we were early to this, to this. And I, that's why I believe we weren't able to get funding, but God knows I wrote so many grants. I wrote the grant to fund that study. I wrote grants around uh, novel mechanism of action. I wrote grants around novel composition of matter patent series. That is similar to what is now under development at Delex Pharmaceuticals. You know, people are trying to make analogs of Ibogaine that have a different safety profile, but may, maybe capture uh, the, you know, this reset in the brain or the psycho, what they call the psychoplastogen effect, the ability to turn on this healing neuroplasticity in the brain and treat the underlying cause of, of the addiction, not just, you know, medicating the symptoms, which is what buprenorphine or suboxone sublocate does for people who are in an intractable cycle of use of opiates. So it was early. It was too early, um, but undeterred. I was I, actually I was heartbroken at the time. You know, when I came, NIDA had this huge meeting, uh, and it's a kind of a pivotal meeting where they brought in uh, academic, key opinion leaders and industry people to review it. And at the time, the industry people said, "You know, uh, you don't want to be working with ibogaine. You should be working with nor ibogaine." And we had already just we had already made that discovery. We characterized noribogaine in my laboratory for the first time. And again, I had wonderful collaborators doing this with me. Wasn't me. It was a bunch of people working on this. And I'm, I'm kind of like um, I, I'm able to pull people together and I see how the parts work. So, you know, I can go out there, get the right talent and get people to move it fast. And we just we disclosed noribogaine. And in fact, I disclosed noribogaine to the NIH even before we had the publication. 
because I thought this was extremely important to help the advancement of Ibogaine, but we couldn't get the money. It's just, and, but isn't it interesting that they're so supportive on one hand, like, yes, this is a problem. Yes. We're, you know, we, we are so interested in investigating this, but no, we're not going to give you any money. <laughs> Why? Well, the FDA, remember the, remember the FDA doesn't fund research. The FDA gives you the approval. The FDA will allow you to, you know, enter into yeah. the various phases of drug development. They'll, they'll green light you, but they don't fund you. You know, a lot of people don't understand that. The FDA doesn't write you a check. You have to raise the funds for drug development. Look how much money has been raised by MAPS for MDMA. Mm -hmm. You know, we're talking $100 million over many years to go from bench to the patient's bedside. 145, I think they're at. I'm sure it's over a hundred million dollars. Yeah. Yes. Ergo, we're all dressed up in Miami. We've got the green light <laughs> from the FDA, and we have nowhere to go. And I, I remember that night. Oh my God, when we when NIDA had that hearing, and I I was in there. You know, I was going down swinging, so to speak. Um, really championing the molecule and fighting for it. And then, you know, it was clear that they were not going to fund this. And I know that NIDA was looking at submitting their own protocol separate from us at the University of Miami. I never quite understood why, but I mean, we were we were set up and had the team, but they wanted, I don't know, you know, I, I'm, I'm not privy to the what the decision making was inside the NIH um, on that one, but be that as it may, um, NIDA has been very good to me for many decades. I'm still a NIDA funded investigator collaborating on projects, but I couldn't fund Ibogaine. So what did I do? What did I do? Well, that day I had nowhere to go that evening. People were going off, various groups were going off and I wasn't invited to go anywhere. Um, <laughs> they were, yeah, it's true. I, it's really true. I didn't, you know, it kind of hurt me actually, but whatever. We never so, really leave high school, do we? <laughs> no, no. Well, I don't. <laughs> you know, people, people still wonder like, what is wrong with this, this woman? <laughs> she's still, you know, running around like Joan d'Arc uh, with Ibogaine. But I sat there in the, you know, there I was all dressed up and nowhere to go. And two young men from Goldman Sachs walked up to me, the Alinsky brothers. And the Alinsky brothers looked at me and said, Dr. Mash, would you like to go to dinner? And I said, yes, <laughs> but I don't have any plans. And um, they sat down and we discussed how you would fund Ibogaine. And they were, you know, they were in the private, they were investment bankers. And they talked to me and basically I came back to Miami and said, okay. I went back to the University of Miami and I raised money from family and friends. And we set up two companies, one company to be a shell company to hold the intellectual property. University of Miami allowed me to do this. And if there was any new intellectual property to be developed, that we would put it in the shell and take it out of the University of Miami. And number two, that I would go offshore to the island of St. Kitts to establish a government-approved psychedelic medicine clinic, inviting people 
to take Ibogaine under full medical monitor with informed consent and with IRBR oversight. That's what I did. And that was called the Healing Visions Institute for Addiction Recovery. The time in St. Kitts, I had been working with a colleague of mine, uh, Dr. Frank Urban, the late Frank Urban, who had trained my mentor at Harvard. And Frank had a monkey colony down there. And I was down there doing what? Working on cocaethylene alcohol drinking monkeys and cocaine and alcohol. And I got a grant from the National Institute on Alcohol Abuse and Alcoholism, NIAAA. So I had money down there and I was in St. Kitts. And I said to Frank, Frank, will you help me? I want to set up an Ibogaine treatment center and, and I want to continue this work. And we did. And there were 277 treatment inter interventions in St. Kitts. People flew in from around the United States and we screen them for eligibility, and um, we dose subjects safely on the island. And their addiction was, was it um, spanning different substances, or was it, oh. it wasn't specific to, to opioids at that time, it, right? It, no, it wasn't, um, because again, we had no knowledge of Ibogaine, mm -hmm. remember? We had very little. We had dosed, uh, the first doses of Ibogaine were actually done in the General Clinical Research Center at the University of Miami. I got through the first two doses that the FDA approved, and then I ran out of money. So we had already had some, you know, limited data on, on starting doses. And we had information about the doses that Howard Lutzoff was using, but he was working with much, much higher doses. And we were not going to do that. We were going to use what we, what the guidance that the FDA had given us, you know, that was very important because the FDA set the parameters, they set the ground rules for, you know, what they believed would be a safe dosing study. And I invited, you know, outside observers. I mean, we had medical doctors, addictionologists from the U.S. We had therapists, you know, we had uh, counselors, psychologists, you name it. We had we had everything. Plus, we had doctors from the island. So this was very, you know, I don't I, I never really present much about this story. But these were great days for me because I'll never, I will go to the grave with, you know, the first six subjects we dosed in St. Kitts and most of them uh, going back to your question. So the, the primary uh, issue for most of the people who joined this program in St. Kitts was opioids. Mm, they were the okay. largest group and they were seeking withdrawal management, right? I began blocks withdrawal. So they wanted to break their cycle of addiction, get off of opioids and try an abstinence-based approach. At the time, the choice was go on methadone or, you know, or detox. And that was it. Then go to meetings, right? Mm -hmm. It's 1996 now. It's when we dosed. November of 1996, we started. And then the other group was cocaine. But we also had some that were alcoholics. We had, of course, polydrug dependency. We did not have methamphetamine, only a few methamphetamine abusers, because there wasn't a lot of methamphetamine around yet then. Because today, different story. And um, wow. Uh, that whole experience working working with patients in treatment, and we we started with you know groups of people. So we would we would we dosed six subjects. The first six subjects, four men and two two women. There were no data on women, and, and you know, but we got so much information. I like to say God has a sense of humor because in the first six, we really learned about the metabolism of the drug. 
So we had very good information about, about uh, the complex way that the body handles ibogaine and how the metabolite is formed. And we learned all that. And Dr. Irvin, the late Dr. Irvin, uh, you know, you know, straight out of central casting, brilliant psychiatrist, biological psychiatrist, and oh yes, oh yes, a skeptic comes in to meet, to meet with me and has his glasses down on his nose. And he said, well, Deborah, it blocks opioid withdrawals. I said, that's right. That his aha moment, huh? No, it was, it was fabulous. And, and, and the therapists, the counselors that were there were really, truly wild because they were going, we've never seen anything like this. You know, people come into treatment, come, people come into detox, people come into rehab. I had people from a local treatment center in Miami that worked with, you know, hardcore users. And they look at my, the first six patients we have in say kits and they go, there's nothing like this. And there we were. And so I couldn't, you know, I kept going and going. And I ran the program for quite a while. And we collected, uh, you know, what is a seminal database of Ibogaine treatments for patients were treated. It's observational data, of course. But we collected a lot of safety parameters and we had pharmacokinetics and genotyping and all the things that the regulators would want to see. And that was published. I published that data for public use in 2018. And I published a subset of all of the treatments, but a very large cohort. And that's one of the largest cohort studies. But today there are many other studies published on Ibogaine too from other clinics that opened up. And we know that there's about 30 so-called Ibogaine facilities, Ibogaine treatment centers that are operating in what we call the medical gray zone in countries where the drug is unregulated. Mm -hmm. And Ohio State University, under the direction, the leadership of Dr. Alan Davis, will be actually organizing a real world evidence study, inviting patients to pre, you know, present their information. And because I think that this is very important, there are so many people that have taken Ibogaine and are here to talk about their experience. The dark side of Ibogaine, which has been a fundamental stumbling block for my research and the work in the Ibogaine field in general, is that people have taken Ibogaine in unsafe settings, mm. not under medical monitor, not, you know, you can't just take Ibogaine. Imagine you're coming in, you're using drugs, you're not healthy. God knows if you've damaged your heart or your liver, or you have some underlying other comorbidity, or you have a psychiatric disability, and the list goes on and on. Mm -hmm. And your you know, electrolytes are abnormal, you're volume depleted, you're dehydrated, you're not eating food, you're sick. And then you go somewhere and you take Ibogaine, and God only knows what the ibogaine is that they're giving you either. These are these are not pure pharmaceutical grade preparations of ibogaine. People are taking ibogaine with all different purities, impurities. We don't even know. And so people get in trouble, and they get in trouble. And there are these ibogaine deaths that are reported in the in as case reports in the peer reviewed literature. I have published a review of these, and you know the fact is, people took it in an unsafe setting. And some people were 
how should we say, unethical in administering it. And people mm-hmm. are desperate to get to break out of their addiction and they'll do anything. And there they go. They broke, they go to the wrong place. That poses a real, that's a stumbling block because when you have adverse events, as for any psychedelic, you know, that we have to, the burden of the burden of proof is on us. When I closed down St. Kitts, I left a vacuum. And that's when all these, you know, there you start to see the Ibogaine clinics popping up. And some had, you know, medical oversight, but many did not. And that's where the dark, the dark side of Ibogaine becomes a real stumbling block for the advancement of this research. And it was, and I started Demrex and there, there's the Demrex years intervening. But in 2018, at the height of the opioid epidemic, I had a real crisis of conscience. And, and I can remember sitting in my, in my living room by myself alone and thinking about this. And I thought, I have to finish what I started. And in 2018, I did that. I stepped out to work full time on this. And I went back and took over a company that I founded. I took over Demrex. I reorganized it. I had to put it into chapter 11, do a complete reorganized reorganization on the company, pay off uh, accrued liabilities, bring in new talent, new leadership, fire the board. And I did all that. And I did it all in one year. And at the end of that year, right when we are clean, we have a clean company and we're ready to go. And my plan was to develop both molecules. And that's when I met people from the line. Questions? Can you hear me? So, yeah, yes. It's, a, it's coming in and out a little bit, but that's when you met the, the people from a tie, I believe is what you said, right? Yes. Okay. Um, I actually entered the next chapter of Ibogaine. <clears throat> Italian chapter. So I want to go back for a moment and talk, you know, the timing on this is, is so interesting because, you know, um, certainly opioid addiction wasn't, you know, those, those seeds were kind of just being planted that, that, um, uh, you know, the, the pharmaceutical companies were just coming out with these, these new, you know, miracle drugs that are painkillers and, you know, they're, they're peddling all of this. So, um, I yes, I was talk. right there. I was right there in the same division, the same division. Keep in mind, I began was going through the same division at the FDA that approved Oxycon. Wow. That. Wow. That is, that is crazy. Well, I mean, and, and, and we talk about, we actually had Carl Hart on the, the podcast a couple of weeks ago, and it was a fascinating conversation about addiction in general and, and like, you know, what addiction is. Um, and I'm just wondering how, what is your definition of addiction and how has, um, I guess the, the opioid crisis kind of turned that on its head? What Carl Hart doesn't believe in addiction. Correct me. He doesn't believe that it's a, a disease of the brain. Yeah, well, I disagree with Carl Hart. Okay. <laughs> Dr. Mash has studied the brain of people who have died with the diagnosis of opioid use disorder and cocaine use disorder, among others. 
I have actually handled the postmortem tissue of individuals, the sons, the daughters, the mother of people who died from opioid intoxication deaths or cocaine related deaths. I've spent decades doing this research. And I can tell you that the number of genes and gene products and proteins, we're, I'm working on genomic research with colleagues from the Icon School of Medicine, the leaders in the field, RTI and other places, Case Western, Yale, people out at UCLA, who are studying the brains of people who have the diagnosis of an addiction. And they are disclosing fundamental changes at the level of the DNA, epigenomic, epigenetic changes, regulation at the level, methylation marks, histone marks. Come on. This is an acquired disease. Addiction is acquired. If you don't go out and get high on dope and become dependent on it, you're not addicted. You can have a genetic risk. Most of us have somebody in our family who has mental health or addiction. There's addiction in my family on my father's side. Okay, there's some mental health issues on my mother's side. So, you know, we all have this. We don't really want to talk about it very much because nobody wants the stigma mm -hmm. of mental health or addiction. But hello, how many people do we know? How many people on this call do we know that have a loved one or a friend or somebody else very close mm -hmm. to us that has a loved one affected? Oh, my God. It touches all of us. Everybody. That's right. I disagree with Professor Hart on this one because it is an acquired disease of the brain and drugs of abuse hijack the neurotransmitter systems and they cause <clears throat> dysfunctional plasticity. You know, drugs of abuse hijack plasticity. Our brain, there are more neurons and neural connections in the brain than there are stars in the Milky Way galaxy. Our brain is really complicated. And, you know, even if you have a risk for an addiction, doesn't mean necessarily you get addicted. If you don't go out and get high, you don't pick up a nicotine cigarette, okay, mm -hmm. you don't smoke, you're not going to get nicotine dependence. If you don't go out and, you know, start chasing the dragon, smoking heroin, you're not going to get addicted. <laughs> you know, some people use drugs recreationally, and this, I think, perhaps is what he's talking about, and they don't fall in the deep, dark hole but many do. And so, you know, and the fact is you look at the brain and there's a, you know, there's a lot of changes at the level of the cell. Now, if that isn't a brain-based disorder, I don't know what is. The other thing is look at the neuroimaging studies. You know, fundamental studies done by the director herself at the National Institute on Drug Abuse, but many others today who have looked at with all of the tools in the toolbox, whether it's spec scanning, PET scanning, positron emission tomography, functional MRI diffusion, diffusion tensor imaging, et cetera, et cetera. You see damage, functional changes and neurochemical changes in the brain of living people. Windows on the brain of somebody, you know, this is your brain on drugs, right? Mm -hmm. Brain is changed. Let's, let's be clear on this. You know, that's why, you know, the work that's coming out of Stanford is so important because it, it, it informs the entire field of psychedelic medicine. 
these drugs are the psychedelic medicines are windows to the brain. They're they're really opening up a whole. And, you know, I'm old enough to know to be able to, I think, to make some kind of comment here, because I was working on the brain and studying the human brain after death before cloning, before the genomic revolution. Hmm. We, you know, I was there before they cloned all the receptor targets in the brain, all these druggable targets that big pharma goes after with to get a blockbuster drug. So it's it it's just so amazing. And then you look at, you know, the the ability, the new tools that we have, you know, and the ability to use artificial intelligence to kind of look at the neural networks in the brain and and to really phenotype these changes for the very first time. So I wanna I wanna humanize the discussion. I think that, you know, right now the addiction field doesn't have a lot of medications. And why is that? Why is big pharma steered clear of developing meds for the treatment of addiction? Well, you know, it's a hard cohort dealing with addicted populations are very hard patients to get into clinical trials, to manage them. You know, you come to the table when you when you're a patient and you enter rehab, you're coming in with a lot of suitcases. You're suffering from depression, anxiety, post-traumatic stress, trauma, sexual abuse. Uh, Oh my God, you know, genetic risk, the the, the list goes on and on and on. So the ability to design a pivotal trial Mm -hmm. to really advance a molecule for approval for a new drug application requires that you work with the regulators to, to really demonstrate a robust endpoint. Big Pharma looks at this. What's the market? How much money do we have to spend? You know, so there's a lot of barriers for entry for for this. And most most of us look at addiction medicine and drug development as specialty pharma. Mm -hmm. That's why ITI life science is so important, because their vision is to take molecules that big pharma has ignored basically and to really address the mental health crisis and if we i just had something come across my computer screen recently that says the burden the global burden of disease for mental health and addict and addiction is going to outpace cardiovascular illness wow we're coming wow. up quite a lot yes we're you know the cost of the opioid use disorder is in the trillions People dying, it's a plane crash a day in our country. We're up to 187. What would the FAA say if a plane went down every single day in the United States of America? Hello. And I, I think this dovetails really well, um, Dr. Mash, you know, talking about the human element and, and um, all of this into what's going on in Kentucky. Um, you recently uh, gave testimony um, there. Um, and for, for our listeners who don't know, there's currently an in- initiative going forward to um, allocate $42 million for psychedelic uh, research and opioid addiction, specifically Ibogaine. Can you talk about what's moving forward in Kentucky and um, expand a little bit on on the testimony you gave? Yeah, I'm delighted to do that. I'm, Kentucky is, again, a, a groundbreaking change for Ibogaine. I mean, there's no, there, the, you can't, you can't under state the importance of this. Kentucky, the the leadership in Kentucky 
you know, gives basically what they're what they're trying to do is to have a carve out from the opioid abatement settlement. Right. There are all Mm -hmm. these class action lawsuits and the states who are really burdened are, are collecting money from the companies that, you know, basically fueled the opioid epidemic, for lack of a better term. And Kentucky's unique here from several, the way I look at it again, historically, you know, some something to be said for someone who can go back in time and look at things. But Kentucky was the first heroin, one of the first um, U.S. public health service heroin farms was located in Kentucky. Interesting fact. Wow. Kentucky was also an epicenter for the Oxycontin epidemic, you know. Because of the poverty in parts of Kentucky, those bottles of Oxy that were in the medicine cabinet suddenly became very valuable. So grandmother or grandfather had a bottle of Oxy in the cabinet. Those bills could go for a hundred bucks a piece. You're poor. You don't have money. Sell your prescriptions. And there you are. Now we have the fentanyl epidemic. But in in between all of that, we have 9-11 and we have more, you know, the Taliban dumps a boatload on America of very pure heroin. So put those two things together. And all of a sudden you've got young people who are partying on Oxy. How many calls I got from family members calling me up going, Dr. Mash, my son was an honor roll student and now he's shooting heroin. I mean, it just it used to, it would break my heart. It would break my heart. And then the families who would call me up or send me emails saying, you know, I could, I wish I had gotten my child a dose of Ibogaine. He's dead. And I, and I don't mean to sound dramatic, but I can't tell you it. It just, it just tears me up. It tears me up. And Ibogaine, it's not a magic bullet. It's not going to work for everyone. We don't want to oversell the science, but Kentucky, you know, Kentucky is really at the forefront. They are taking the bull by the horns and the fact that they're even allowing the discussion to go to occur. And my understanding is that there, there are other movements in other states. Mm -hmm. And this is exactly what we need. We need a public-private partnership. We need to bring the best academic investigators from the state of Kentucky together. And there are some excellent groups in Kentucky. I mean, there's, you know, leaders in the field of addiction medicine in Kentucky, one of which is Sharon Walsh. Dr. Sharon Walsh um, heads up um, many of the FDA-approved studies that were done, uh, for example, around buprenorphine and lefexidine. So she's uniquely well-qualified to help inform this discussion. And I believe that if Kentucky does put these funds and sets aside a a certain amount of funds, people will be able to, you know, submit applications. Any qualified group can go in there and submit their application. It will have to be done with FDA approval. You cannot dose anybody without FDA permission in the United States. So you'll have to file an IND just like I did many decades ago, back into the, in front of the FDA, get in front of the FDA, have the conversation with the FDA and the FDA will look at all the available information and the FDA will weigh the benefits and risks. And if the FDA says you're good to go, and I believe they will, I mean, that's just my own personal um, 
belief system here, but I believe the FDA really, really wants to help solve this problem. I, I, I'm, I'm very pro working with the FDA because my experience with them has been incredible. Well, and I think, and I think another important part of this is that, you know, going back to what you were talking about earlier of people that were suffering from this needing to go outside of the United States to get the treatment just because of the different regulatory hurdles here. I, it feels like the Kentucky, if, if, if it does follow through that, this begins a, a, a program where people can get help actually without having to, you know, foot the bill for for traveling um, out of the country or finding a, a, a center outside of the United States to, to be able to get this help. Like, I think that's like also a, a huge part of what what's moving forward here. And, you know, like just getting people help in, in stateside, I think, is especially for veteran communities and stuff. We've heard too many well, times. Where that they they, need they, it. Yeah. Yeah. Where they need it rather than, you know, having them have to search to find it. I think that's just a really important aspect of all this, too. Right. It's a huge aspect. The ability to to have patients. So many people cannot afford to go offshore. And the and the most, you know, the, the most urgent need is in parts of communities that are already underserved. You know, black and brown communities. This is an African sacrament. Yeah. We need, I mean, I don't, you know, I don't know. Maybe I wake up in the morning and I, you know, I look at the world through, you know, my, my Ibogaine rosy glasses, but I see so many people so desperate for something else. And I think that, and, and we know from uh, discussions with key opinion leaders, this is work uh, proprietary to a Thai life sciences that it's interesting there is a you know a, there is a growing consensus among the doctors the addiction the people who are providing treatment to patients every day you know in addiction medicine services addiction psychiatry services that there needs to be alternatives to suboxone and methadone for the opioid users and Let's give patients another tool in the toolbox. There's, I be, you know, Ibogaine is an experimental investigational drug. It needs to be studied. We need to demonstrate robust endpoints. So you've got to have, you know, efficacy endpoints and safety endpoints. But I believe that there is a wealth of information already in the peer-reviewed literature not only from my work, but from other people. And again, the veterans, our veterans, the men and women who served our country, who have to go, and there's a foundation, you know, important foundations, two major efforts to work with our veterans. But I've heard numbers such as a thousand SEALs, Navy SEALs have gone to Mexico to take Ibogaine and have done so safely. And they are providing public testimonials and helping other members go for treatment. We should be doing this in the VA, just like MDMA is being studied in the VA system. I, Rachel Yehuda, Dr. Rachel Yehuda, nat, member of the National Academy, I mean, one of the, um, just a brilliant uh, woman who has advanced our understanding of trauma and injury to the brain and the epigenetics too. I mean, really fundamental science that nobody was talking about. And she's been working on it. And now she's 
has a, you know, a seminal study ongoing. We need to bring this into the FDA. We need to get all the people to the table quickly to advance this drug. And Atai has done a lot, invested millions of dollars to get the drug ready or what we call, you know, IND enabled so that this can go forward. And I think I welcome, you know, I, I welcome an expansion. We need to pick up the pace. Let's get this done. Thank you, Kentucky. Thank, Thank you, Kentucky. Kentucky. <laughs> yes. What's next for um, Demerex in terms of, uh, and and then also what has you, you know, we've talked a lot about, oh, let me start with what's next. And then, and then I have a follow-up question. What's next uh, is, you know, close collaboration with the Thai life sciences. A Thai is important to the mission for Ibogaine. Atai has the bandwidth. They the reason that I at the very beginning why we at Demerex uh, wanted the the joint venture with Atai was precisely because they had not only the the funding but even more important the intellectual currency. That's what I call it. They had people that were knowledgeable in the area of drug development. Drug development is not for the faint of heart. <laughs> Buckle up. Okay, this is a this is a bucking bull. It is very much a roller coaster and designing the trial correctly, picking the site, getting the patients there. It's there's a lot of there's a lot of bumps in the road. There's a lot of roadblocks and there's a lot of potholes. There's a lot of sinkholes. Okay, so. I believe that the, you know, we we at Demerex will be relying much more as we get close to opening a phase two study that, you know, our collaboration will shift more towards a tie and their leadership teams to to bring this through to patients and to get the regulatory approval and to get the sites going. It costs a lot of money to do this work. And and it's not the Kentucky money will leverage could be leveraged but it's not enough money all right even right. though it's hundreds big, of millions of dollars right 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 so yeah. you know i think this is a fundamental there's no doubt in my mind that if we are successful in kentucky when we are successful i'm going to be i'm going to put it in the positive when we are successful. speak it into existence <laughs> you know i've been doing that my friend i believe <laughs> Um, I do believe you manifest uh, your your uh, your plans. And uh, so, that's what we want to do. We want to do it with our colleagues in Kentucky. And and we need uh, we need the eight high jockeys on the horse. You know, you you mentioned that this is not for the faint of heart and you've witnessed, you know, 30 years of, of true human suffering, um, which would really, um, I think, deter a lot of people. What keeps you optimistic? Oh my God. Why, why have I never let go? I've never let go because I have seen it help people because we still have, I get letters and text messages and emails and yes, flowers on mother's day from people Aww. who came through St. Kitts and, you know, thank me. Thank you, Dr. Mesh. Thank you for saving my life. I don't deserve that. This is not about me. This is all about a potential antidote from Mother Nature that could be developed as a pharmaceutical product 
that can help patients break out of their cycle of addiction. It can give us back, you know, our families. It can, and addiction is a family disease. The whole family suffers. The whole family, you know, children are, are you know, it, it wrecks everything. I, I have families contact me where they mortgage their homes to save their son or their daughter. Mm -hmm. I've, you know, I've heard this story again and again. I know that methadone and Suboxone are very important and they save lives. And I know that there is a, a movement in the United States to expand access to these drugs. But it keeps people addicted. Mm -hmm. And what what we see is a revolving door. People will go on buprenorphine for a time. You know, our our insurance policies are paying for it. And they get a little stabilized, they get some money and they go off the buprenorphine and then they go back out and they use heroin. And they get back into trouble and they come back in on buprenorphine. We're not, we're not breaking the cycle of addiction. Mm -hmm. We're not healing the addicted brain. Oh yes, Professor Hart, healing the addicted brain. We're, we're not addressing the root causes of addiction. Many people self-medicate. They medicate, again, what we were talking about, they medicate intractable depression. They, they medicate trauma, sexual abuse, child abuse, neglect. The list is very long. So that's, again, what's so exciting about this. And again, going back to Stanford, um, you know, when you have, you look at veterans, and I, and I agree with you that the veterans are, you know, we, we love our men. Thank you, men and women, for your service to our country, you know. We all stand behind. We must stand behind our veterans. And now our president talks a lot about this, but I think every president and everybody is this bipartisan. We we want to support our veterans and we have a responsibility to do so. And the fact that our veterans have to leave the, co the shores to go to Mexico to take an investigational drug, to go home to be mothers and fathers, to put their families back together, to become part of the workforce, you know, I mean, the trickle down and trickle up here, the numbers are too big. This can save money. This can have health outcomes, benefits to save our taxpayers a lot of money. Let's put it, let's frame it. We have a responsibility to support people and give them best medical options. But we also need to save money in our country. We're facing addiction is an existential threat in our country right now. Today, as I sit here. And I've stayed with it because, because in my heart, I believe that this drug can be developed safely. That And I live for the day. <laughs> you know, I'm not getting any younger. I've been at this a long time. And I, I just live for the day to see a phase two study in the United States and that first dose to go into patients. And when that day comes, I can say my effort has been realized. And there will be others who will pick up this baton and take the charge. I live for that day. Thank you so much. I mean, I think that's a great place to end this. We, we only got to like, not even half of the questions we wanted to ask you, but this has been a fascinating discussion. <laughs> 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 
All right. But, but so we want to have you back on at some point. Um, Mm -hmm. and just, just thank you for all of your work, um, and your, your, um, your, your dedication. Um, and you know, we're, we're really excited for you and for, for what's to come. Yeah. Thank you very much. Thank you. Huge thanks again to uh, Dr. Deborah Mash, Chief Executive Officer and President of DemRx. Make sure you check out all of the work that's going forward at her company at DemRx.com. That's D-E-M-E-R-X.com. As always, thanks for listening to The Green Rush. If you want to connect with Anne, Lewis, or myself, you can find us on Twitter with the handle at the underscore Green Rush, on Instagram at the Green Rush underscore podcast, or shoot us an email at greenrush at kcsa.com. We love your feedback. We love your guest ideas. We love hearing about all the topics that are most important to you when it comes to cannabis and psychedelics. And as always, don't forget to subscribe to The Green Rush in your favorite podcatcher. One take, Shay. One take. <laughs>